Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. So as always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for helping to make this class happen. Okay, hi everybody. We are... Still wrapping up the 16th century, even though I swore I was going to do it last week, because we didn't get the full story out of the Maharalmi Prague. Um, so in the sort of big picture of today, what I would like to do is, is um, just take a look at this challenge of the rising skepticism um, that comes together with the scientific revolution at, at the end of the 16th and early 17th century, in, both in its sort of European context, we'll touch on a couple of names and personalities, as well as uh, particularly in the Jewish context, because that is, of course, our story. Uh, then I'm going to shift gears, and I would like to introduce the, let's call it, socio-political context of um, what's happening in Central Europe uh, in order to understand a, a very important demographic shift for Am Yisrael, for the Jews of Europe. And in the sort of large-scale picture where we're going to go from there, just because I know people often like to know where it is we're going, um, I'm going to pause really at 1648 in Europe. We're going to jump over, well, I guess it is Europe, but in Central Europe. We're going to jump over to Northern Europe, not today. This is going to go ahead. And we're going to speak about the rise of the community of Amsterdam, which is both um, culturally and intellectually a very important community. We'll, we'll chase that story down probably all the way through the personality of Rav Menashe ben Israel, if people are familiar. If not, then you will be, God willing. Um, uh, then we will swing back to the Ottoman Empire for the rise of the great uh, Shabtai Tzvi and the Messianic explosion of the mid to later 17th century. And God willing, we're going to wrap up this semester, I suspect, with um, Baruch Spinoza swinging back to Amsterdam. Uh, and there's plenty more to do if we should happen to cover that ground. But um, that, that's all today. No. <laughs> um, okay, great. So, so for today, we're going to start with just a reminder, because uh, somebody asked me, that, that the Maharal, right, which is, of course, you know, we're still naming people with acronyms at this point. In, oh, it looks like it works. Maharal. What? Uh, well, it, it, I can just tell it will fall apart soon. Um, Maharal is usually known as the Maharal Mi Prague. Um, even though he was born, as we spoke about, in, in Poznan, in Poland, and actually rose to the rabbinate first in Germany, and we'll speak a little bit about the German rabbinate um, later. Uh, his proper name, he was named Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda Lau Ben Bitzalel. Um, he's known as Maharami Prague because he ultimately returns to Prague, and in many ways, that's kind of uh, where the city reveres him. If people have been to Prague, you've probably seen the statue of the Maharami there, uh, the stories of the golem, right, this sort of uh, Frankensteinish type monster that, that the Maharal brought into being. Those stories took place in Prague. Um, and in general, as we spoke about last week, Prague was an important cultural center because the seat of the Holy Roman Empire moved there in the latter half of the 16th century under Rudolf II, who was this very wacky emperor who I encourage you to just look into on your own. We're not going to go there. But I want to speak about skepticism. We were speaking last week uh, about epistemology, about the, the study of knowledge. Remember, not what you know, but how you know anything. And I gave you guys Rav Sajagon's classic explanation of the four parts of epistemology, of um, sensory data, you know, the seeing is believing, um, acquired knowledge, 
learning, logical induction, right, or deduction, depending on how you look at it, which is this belief that the human mind has intrinsic structures that can derive knowledge from what's already known, um, where there's smoke, there's fire. The, and last but certainly not least, authentic tradition. Yeah, this should sound familiar. And I have characterized multiple times at this point that, that modernity, one of the primary hallmarks of modernity is the uncoupling of knowledge from tradition. Right? In the European world, that was the scientific revolution. Picture Kepler and Tycho Brahe and the other early observational astronomers. Or if you want to go later into the 17th century, Galileo Galilei, right, um, who says, look through the telescope. Don't tell me what you believe. Tell me what you see. Right? And this leads to, anybody know, what was the method that was the primary method of the early scientific revolution? Empiricism, and therefore, it was an inductive method. Right? Induction is, let's just look again and again and gather data. And then, once I have enough data, I will sort of begin to educe from it a theory of how that data fits together. As opposed to the classic scientific method, which emerges later, which is what? Deductive, right? I will, I will hypothesize about a way I think the world is and seek to prove or disprove. There's good reasons that empiricism comes first. Because if you always want to remember, that, I would say the two watchwords of European skepticism, the two phrases that I'll give you to put in your pocket and we'll kind of uh, put it to the side for now, come from Descartes and from, from um, mind is blanking, going to look at my notes, one second, sorry, still, still having a, a, a bit of a challenge here, um, from Descartes and uh, Sir Isaac Newton. What? Sir Isaac Newton. Newton. Uh, Descartes whose discourse on method is really kind of the Bible of European philosophical skepticism, says the following. He says, the first rule was to accept as true nothing that I did not to know to be evidently so. Right? This is called Descartesian skepticism. Accept nothing as true unless it's evidently so. Meaning that empirically, you know it's true. And of course, where does Descartes end up? He doubts everything except what? His thinking process. Right, that's the, I think, therefore I am. It's often missed that what is I think, therefore I am? It's the ultimate statement of philosophical skepticism. He strips away every belief until he gets to one thing he can't refute, which is the fact that he's there doubting things. So once he's established that he's there doubting things, then he can reconstruct, in the discourse on method, a, a philosophical basis for knowledge. And that basis is going to be completely empirical. Now, notice what he's done. He's taken the first three elements of Rav Sadia's epistemology, senses, learned experience, and logical, and dismissed the fourth. There is no authentic tradition any longer. He's uncoupled knowledge from tradition. Newton's statement is, um, I feign no hypothesis, right? That, that real knowledge cannot be preceded by assumptions about the world because it will limit your ability to empirically observe. Well, here in the postmodern era, we realize that that is nonsense. That you cannot re remove a frame from the act of observation. But they were blissfully unaware of this at the beginning of the modern era. And it's very important to know that because the assumption of it flowing out of the Renaissance and out of humanist Catholicism, stuff we spoke about last semester, 
The assumption is that you can actually know. And that what's the barrier to knowing? Sorry, the barrier to knowing? Tradition. Which is going to be bad news for the Jews, one would think. Because here's Rav Sajigon telling us that tradition is the basis of all our knowledge. And in the European world, that's just sort of like what we call obscurantism, which is kind of a fun phrase you can take home for your friends, that you're, you're obscuring reality through your belief. It'll be the Hasidim who really get called obscurantists by the, by the later enlighteners. We may get to that, not this year, but next. So, okay, so th this is what's happening in, in, within the context of Europe, and we'll return to its political consequences later. But how does this play out in the world of the Jews? Well, is it possible for the Jews to get rid of tradition and still claim knowledge? On one hand, we saw the Ramah. What did the Ramah say? A little review. Where it doesn't contradict the sages. And first of all, he says you can uncouple physics from metaphysics. You know, he, in his book, Torah Ola, he says, yeah, astronomy works. Kepler, Tycho Brahe, they're looking at the skies. Who cares about Ptolemaic astronomy? Notice, the church placed Ptolemaic astronomy, the, the, the sort of uh, cosmology of the late antiquity, as a religious principle. Right? And the Ramah says, what do I care about that? Why is the Ramah interested in astronomy, by the way? I don't know if we ever spoke about that. Is he just, sort of, is he just uh, interested in knowledge for knowledge's sake? Why is the Ramah interested in astronomy? The calendar. And this is critical, is that in the end of the day, what will save Judaism, to this very day, in my humble opinion, from all of the intellectual assaults of first the scientific revolution and then the enlightenment and now the postmodern era, is the fact that, bottom line, the Jew is what a Jew does, not what a Jew believes. It's not that belief isn't important. And as we'll see, I don't think you can really disconnect the two entirely. But the Ramah was interested because he wanted to have a better calendar. And so he was willing to say, ah, look, Ptolemy, who cares? This calendar works. These observations work. And, and the focus on behavior, as opposed to the Catholic Church, whose focus is on belief, and also even Protestant, even more so, Protestant Christianity's focus on belief, has a deep challenge when you begin to uncouple physics from metaphysics. If you try to detach a system of belief, they're not left with concrete behavior. Yeah, Chuck. I mean, the simple answer is observational astronomy works no matter whether you think that the Earth is at the center or the sun is at the center. It's a bit of an academic question until you start shooting rockets off the surface of the planet, which one's moving. You understand, right? Does the sun rise in the east, set in the west? I mean, it sure looks like it does. So practically speaking, that's all you need to know. Remember, the halakha in general is experientially oriented. It's not a question of reality. This is very important to remember, as we spoke about with Maral, who we'll come back to. Halakha is not about reality in the way that physics is about. Halakha is about human experience and the will of the divine. And actually, that's a perfect segue into the battle between the Maharal and Azariah Durasi. So, if you recall, I'll just remind you that the, we, we encountered the Maharal um, in the context of the struggle around Copernicus's work on heliocentrism. Right? Copernicus publishes... Uh, on the revolution of the heavenly spheres in, in 1543. It's largely unremarked, although we saw that really cool statement from Luther, if you guys recall. Um, it, it's only in 1616, after Maral is dead, that the church will condemn heliocentrism as heresy. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What happens to religion when it takes a stance on science by calling it 
heresy. You know, because you thought it was a product of modernity, because I told you it was, to uncouple knowledge from tradition. And that's from the perspective of the scientist. Don't tell me what you believe. Look in the telescope and tell me what you see. Now what's the church saying? It's the exact opposite. Don't tell me what you see. Put the telescope away and tell me what you believe. And so therefore, that stance on science will be forced to retreat ever further from a scientific engagement with the world, which of course will be fuel on the fire of the European Enlightenment, as we will see going down the line. The Maral had a different perspective. What did the Maral say? He said, on one hand, you've got these scientists who don't believe in God. They're heretics. I don't have much to say to, say to them. He said, on the other hand, you have all these religious people trying to deny the, the observation of the scientists. Remember I told you that Kepler's planetary laws, which were promulgated at the time the Maral was alive, were the first three natural laws. This is the first time science had ever given a highly demonstrable, intellectually rigorous formulation of natural laws. You can't argue with the planets. So he says, so you have the scientists who are just heretics they don't believe in God. You have these, he didn't call them fanatics, but let's say simple-minded religious people who insist that, well, the scientists must be wrong and they're arguing the data of their senses. And what was the Maharal solution? It's all a matter of perspective. Maharal says that when, and they were talking about the sun standing still for Joshua in the battle of the Ayalon Valley. Because, you know, the Bible says the sun stood still. Therefore, if you're on the rabbi's side, the sun stood still and fed Kepler. But if you're on the scientist's side, <laughs> sorry guys, the sun doesn't stand still. A, the sun ain't moving, the earth is. B, things don't stop. <laughs> they don't stop. And what did the morale say? He said the sun only stood still for Am Yisrael when they crossed the Jordan. That it was only within their ofek, within their horizon, that such a thing was necessary in order to express the deeper truth of creation, which is that everything goes according to God's will. For the rest of the world, what was God's will? Kamin hago noheg, that the world would continue as it always had. And I want you to take this, because we're going to go now into this argument between the Maral and Azariah de Rossi. I want you to take this as a very important insight, one which I believe um, offers, I'm not a big fan of solutions. I'll tell you now, I'm a counselor, I do a lot of uh, spiritual counseling, and, and my experience as a counselor is that if you're looking to solve people's problems, you're going to do more damage than good. But often, what you can do is offer frameworks to help people, if not solve them, at least manage them. Because many of the real problems in life aren't actually amenable to being solved. They need to be managed. And one of the ways in which one can manage such a thing is understanding that there are multiple perspectives. Right? And the Maral says that the world, from God's perspective, does not look the same as it does from human perspective. And that when the Bible shows us things that we call miracles, which by definition is an exception to the rule, right? right? When the Bible does that, it's in order to let us know that there's really only one perspective, and that's God's. It's just that we live most of our lives ignorant of it, other than through the text that we've inherited. As we're going to see, that's his battle. Yeah, Abraham. So did the Maral say, like, we have young proof Gosh, I'm having water leakage issues. Um, sorry, guys. Um, I've, this is like the third time I've spilled this water bottle today. Um, 
Yes. In fact, the Maharal offers this um, compromise position when, um, in his, as I said, in the introduction to Buat Hashem and to his work on the Exodus from Egypt. Um, another way to look at this, by the way, and then I'll go on with the history, is that people may be familiar, you raised this in the email you sent me, may be familiar with the Midrash. You ever heard of the Midrash that when the sea split for Am Yisrael, all the water in the entire world split? Raise your hand if you've heard the Midrash. Raise your hand if you're wondering if like, some Egyptian went to get in the bath that morning and all of a sudden it was like, wham, oh! It's a very strange Midrash. Yeah? Like, what, what does it mean that when the sea split for Israel, all the water in the whole world split? I think that the answer actually is quite clear and it's very elegant. And again, it serves our purpose in terms of how the Maharal relates to the words of the sages. Is that once the sea split, there's no going back. That the sea splitting wasn't just a change in perspective for the people who walked through the Red Sea. It was an indication to creation that such a thing is possible. And that's one of the ways to understand that statement that all the water in the world split, which is that now, up until now, you believe such a thing could not be. Once it has happened, such a thing is possible. The, ex- the horizon of the possible expands. And that doesn't mean you'll ever see it, but it means you'll relate to the world in a fundamentally different way. And so this is an excellent segue into the question of, you know, in that pillar of authentic tradition, which serves a very important basis in the Jewish mind, and by the way, in the human mind for knowing anything. Because the, we all have our assumptions. That's what the whole postmodern argument is, that knowledge is culturally relative. I don't know how much time people have, felt wallow, have spent wallowing in postmodernism, but, but, but the whole argument about epistemology in postmodernism is that knowledge is culturally relative because even though we all may share sensory input, the ability to learn, logical deduction, Right? The authentic tradition, the cultural framework, language, uh, culture, gender, race, all these things that are how, make up how you know the world mean that we fundamentally know things in different ways. So for the Jews, what's authentic tradition? What's the source of authentic tradition? You don't have to, I mean, I'm asking you to raise a vote on theology. What would the Maharal say it was? The Torah, right? Except the Torah, of course, comes in a package. And what's that package? The sages. So what happens when you begin to undermine emunat chachamim? When you begin to under, undermine the faith in the sages? Remember, I warned you about this with that statement of the Rambam that said, when it comes to science, they were just doing the best they could and they were using the knowledge of their day, which seemed logical. Remember, the Ramah echoed it. And that's why they could sort of, with the brush of a stroke, a stroke of a pen, they could just dismiss the, the loss of Ptolemaic astronomy, and except early modern astronomy. But what happens when you go further? That chink in the armor, if you're going to doubt the sages about one thing, what are you willing to doubt them about others? Which brings us to Azariah ben Moses de Rossi. He's Azariah min ha'adumim. He's uh, Azariah from, from the red, which is a, probably a play on de Rossi, because that means red in, in Italian. He is a, an Italian Jewish, he's a physician, he's a scholar, he's a rabbi. He's born in Mantua. In 1511, I will write his name. Look at that. Azaria de Rossi. He's, uh, he's, he's part of, oh, according to tradition, he, his family was um, one of the four noble families of Jerusalem brought by Titus from Jerusalem to Rome. Titus was the Roman general who eventually became emperor, but he was the Roman general who destroyed Jerusalem. Right? So he's, he's got yichas, as we say. He's an important cultural figure 
within Italian Jewry, and he belongs to that category of Italian Jewry that we spoke about before, who has a deeply humanist renaissance element to their education. It's a big question why all these um, rabbis who in their day often were considered problematic, if not downright heretical, but whose works were often resurrected later in life, why are they all so sort of liberally educated? If people are familiar with the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Luzato, right, who was a famous Kabbalist and very important um, Jewish thinker, did you know he wrote plays in Italian? I mean, like, the, this, is, this was like a thing in, in Italian Jewish culture. So, so um, the, one of the answers might very well be that there was a, a lack of higher education for Jews in Italy. There weren't so many advanced shivot as there were either in Germany before or in Poland at this point. So oftentimes, Jews that wanted an advanced education would end up in the U University of Padua, which was one of the only universities in Europe that actually accepted Jews. In fact, rumor has it, fairly well-established rumor in the academic world, even employed Jews as professors within the, the classics and uh, uh, Hebrew language. So whatever it was, uh, Azariah de Rossi, by early life, was already proficient in Hebrew, Latin, Italian literature, he was studying medicine, archaeology, Greek, Roman, and he was studying Christian scriptures as well. He was a product of Renaissance culture, right? Um, he, the, the sort of turning point in his, in his intellectual life happened when he left the city in the wake of an earthquake and was asked by a Christian scholar who happened to be his new neighbor whether a Hebrew translation of the letter of Aristeus existed. The letter of Aristeus is a very interesting product of Hellenistic Jewish culture. So we're talking about eh, second century of the Common Era, probably, actually no, before the Common Era, I take it back. Second century before the Common Era. It's a letter that describes the translation of the Torah into Greek, into what's known as the Septuagint. We spoke about it, gosh, I don't remember what it was, probably last year. Um, but it's a, it's a product of Hellenistic Jewish culture. And you may remember, if you were in the class two years ago, we spoke about Hellenistic Jewish culture. We talked about Philo. People may be familiar with Philo of Alexandria or Philo Judaeus, as he's known. And I pointed out, or, or um, the later products, say um, Josephus, great Jewish historian, um, those works which were written in Greek were largely lost to the Jews. Lost in the sense that they weren't interested. They were written in Greek. They belonged to a Hellenistic Jewish culture which blended into Christianity and therefore was the rabbis in late antiquity were antagonistic toward its literary products. Philo was Jewish, even though the church retroactively sees him as, as, a, as almost a precursor of uh, Christianity for reasons that I'm not going to go into now, but you can always listen to it on the podcast. Um, Philo was a Jew and, and, a, and a rabbinic Jew at that. He was a traditionalist amongst the Hellenistic Jews. But... But it's Azariah de Rossi who's the first person of note who begins to bring the Hellenistic Jewish literature back to the attention of the rabbinic class. He does a translation of the letter of Aristeus into Hebrew. It takes him 20 days, which is fairly impressive. It's not a short document. From the Greek into Hebrew. And why is he able to do it? Because he speaks Greek. Why does he speak Greek? Because he's Italian. It sounds strange, I know. But trust me that German and Polish Jews, they didn't speak Greek. Right? And interestingly enough, neither did the Jews of the Ottoman Empire. They were much more likely to speak Arabic or Turkish, right? not Greek. It was actually Italian Jewry that maintained that attachment to classical Western culture. Um, from here, it was a short step for him to ask the questions of what's an earthquake, which you may have good answers to. My first degree is in geology. We can talk about it some other time. But um, in the, early, the late 15th, early 16th century, it was just not so obvious what an earthquake was. So he wrote 
Oh, did I write down the name of that? Um, I'm sure I did. The, yes, it's called um, Kol Elohim, the voice of God. That's right? a good one. Explanation of, of this earthquake. Um, and finally, last but not least, he writes Imre Bina, uh, words of understanding. Imre Bina is a Renaissance-style history, which treats both Jewish and non-Jewish history. And for its sources, draws upon not only, I mean, the Talmud's full of, let's call it meta-historical or quasi not meta, quasi-historical information, stories about history. You've heard many of them here if you've been around long enough. Um, but he also draws on Philo. He draws on Josephus. He draws on non-Jewish Christian sources because history in Renaissance Europe has become a discipline. Right? And most importantly, he takes on two pillars of Jewish life. He takes on the Agadita, he takes on the rabbinic sort of narrative portions of rabbinic literature, calling them fabricated, fabricated conjectures. I'm sure it sounds better in Italian. Um, and he takes on the calendar. He takes on the calendar both in its long form, meaning the Persian period, if anybody ever wants to talk about it, is the black hole of Jewish history. If you go back, what, what books of the Bible come out of the Persian period? Esther, which right away you should say, ooh, something sketchy going on there. Daniel, which of course the biblical critics say was not even written at that point. It was written hundreds of years later. Ezra, Nehemiah. This is the black hole of Jewish history. There's a huge gap between academic chronology about how the years work out from the transition from the Greek to the Persian, sorry, the Persian to the Greek empires, uh, and um, how traditional Jewish chronology points it out. We're not going to go into it now, but, but like I said, you can look it up on the podcast or you can corner me later and ask me questions. But the thing is that Azaria de Rossi is amongst the first of the rabbinic class to start saying, listen, i got news for you. The academics are right. And our count is wrong. Which is a very big contention. So he's not so popular for that. And in particular, it will be, I mean, he's condemned amongst his peers. Rabbi Yosef Karo, who's who? What did, what did he write? Excellent. Shulchan Aruch. So remember, he is the embodiment of tradition as a source of authority. He at, he's at the end of his life by the time what's, the book is called Me'or Enaim. The, the Azariah Darasi takes these, his, his translation of the letter Aristius, which is called um, Hadrat Zakenim, and his understanding of the earthquake, which is called Ko'elohim, and his history work, which is called Imre Bina. He puts them all together, publishes them at one, as one book called Me'or Enaim, which you can still get today, not to be confused with the Hasidic work, Moenaim. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not an easy book to find. Um, but the, 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 the Moenaim in its day caused a lot of waves. There are Italian rabbis who immediately upon its even pre-publication, because he sent out, he's no fool, he sent out manuscripts to his peers uh, he was forced to, uh, let's just say, edit certain elements of it, take pages out, etc. Um, like I said, Rabbi Yosef Karo, author of the Shulchan Aruch, who was at the end of his life, commissions one of his students to actually write a letter declaring it heresy and requiring it to be burnt. Right? But he dies. The Yosef Karo dies before the letter is completed, so therefore it, it so never really gets off the ground. Burning books is not as easy as the Nazis would make you think. Um, and for our story, most importantly, 
the Maharalmi Prague, when he hears and reads his work, decides to take him on. And what happens is that the Maharal's fight with Azari Durasi really becomes a proxy battle between a Jewish perspective on modernity and I would say the classic humanist perspective on modernity. So I want to touch on it briefly here, um, lay it out a little bit, and, and then we will move on to the socio-political context of Central Europe. But before I do, questions, comments, before we get full on into their battle? Yes? Yes. What I'm saying, I mentioned perspective in this, in the morales sense that there's, there's a divine perspective from which the sun stood still and the general human perspective from when it's not. For what, I'm, what I'm saying is that this notion that there is a reality is a matter of perspective. And, and that's why the Maharal's writings fit more easily into the postmodern world than they do into the modern, which is precisely the battle he's about to have with Azaria Durasi. So stay tuned. On the contrary, we make, we make reality through our interaction with it. And this notion that reality, uh, just a word on, on cognition as long as you're going to ask. Cognition, again, is this process of knowing the world. It's not what you know, it's how you know. I'll give you an example. I won't make you raise your hands, but how many gods do Jews believe in? Right, we believe in one god. That can be a point of information, in which case, when you turned of a majority age, 12 for girls, 13 for boys, they would ask you, Here's a multiple choice question. There are one, three, five gods. Check the right box. Which one would you check? One, and then you're done with it, because who's going to forget? That's information. Cognition is, what does it mean to know the world in light of one god? The classic expression of this is, what do you do with evil? You understand? That, that's cognitive. That's a cognitive frame. There is one god. Now, what do I do with Auschwitz? Right, as opposed to information. And so therefore, the act of cognition, the way in which we know the world, the model that most people work on, unfortunately, is a product of the modern world, which is known as the computer model of cognition, right? um, which is basically your consciousness is parachuted into the world, and the world exists outside of you. And you're mapping the world. That's knowledge. This is how most of us think of the world. But, but it seems more and more that the physicists, even, forget psychoanalysis and all that, just the physicists are starting to realize, huh, actually not how the world works. The world comes into being through our knowing it. Not entirely. We're co-authors. We're not authors. Even according to the physicists, much less according to the rabbis. You understand the difference? So there is no reality that exists as an abstract outside of you. Who was the first philosopher to argue this? Kant. So it'll take the Europeans until the 18th century. To, uh, to get there, but, this, but rather, we bring the world into existence through knowing it, which means, by the way, that the world could be otherwise. And that's very important for what we're driving. Yeah, that, that answer your question? Sort of. <laughs> Chew on it, you get back to me. Yeah, Dove. Louder, please, I can't hear you. I'm about to. Great, let's go with the example, and then we'll get into the argument. So. The Gemara says that Titus dies because a gnat flies up his nose and then grows to some enormous size and eventually drives him mad. And I forget if he kills himself or he dies. I forget how the story ends. But what? 
Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, right? That sounds like Yiddish curse, man. Nat, fly up your nose and grow, you know. Um, if anybody speaks Yiddish out there and wants to translate that for me later, I'd love to be able to quote it. The, it sounds like a stretch. And not only does it sound like a stretch, but there are actually Roman sources that say Titus died of a fever. So, so Azari de Rossi says, listen, with all due respect to the sages, it's nonsense. It's nonsense what they're saying. First of all, scientifically speaking, gnats don't fly up your nose and grow to the size of basketball. It doesn't happen. Second of all, we have non-Jewish sources which have a historical integrity that our sources lack, which say the story happened otherwise. You hear the two challenges? One is the sages are saying bubamices, because of course they spoke Yiddish. And the other is that, that the scientific world of the non-Jewish world is actually the standard of measure for what's true. And so therefore, in one fell swoop, there's your example, um, he offends the Maharal on both important fronts, which is what's the standard of measure of truth, and are the agaratot meant to be taken seriously? If people aren't familiar, the Maharal has a, uh, a work called Chidushe Agadot, the, the insights on the narrative portions of the Gemara. And as one of my rabbis once said to me, the difference between the Maharal and everybody else who comments on the Agadot is he swings at every pitch. Meaning he, it is a comprehensive analysis of the rabbinic portion, or the, sorry, the narrative portions of the Gemara. Which means that the Maharal took them quite seriously. And the question is, what did he take from them? And what can we learn about this point in early modernity? So, so first of all, the Maharal's concern is that if you take a brick out of the structure of knowledge, it all falls apart. Now, don't mistake this as fundamentalism. Because you could say that very easily as a fundamentalist, right? Once you doubt the rabbis, you're out of the camp. Anybody ever heard that from one of their teachers? Um, that's not what the Maharal is saying, although, in all honesty, back in the 16th century, he probably would have agreed with that statement. But that wasn't his concern. His concern was, well, how do you know anything, actually? Because if you remove the assumption, now everything he knows is based on the assumption that revelation took place. And, but that revelation has been subject to an ongoing process since Sinai. Right? And if you take a piece out of that process, what are you going to have to fill it with? Non-Jewish knowledge. In which case, you no longer know the world as a Jew. See, uh, De Rossi says in defense of himself that, you know, the whole classic metaphor of standing on the shoulders of giants? Now, he says, uh, I'll actually give you the quote because it's a, it's a very important way in which he says it. He says, in, in, the, in science we're permitted to listen to those who wrote against the sages and investigate issues according to our knowledge. Key there is our knowledge. Where did he get his knowledge from? He says, well, you know, when it came to prophecy, the first possess over the last, he says, when it comes, he says, which, he says I'll read it to you. In this way, one can rightfully claim that the superiority which the first possess over the last with respect to prophecy, meaning there was Sinai, and, and everybody afterwards is in, on a descending level, he says, because they were closer to the prophets, corresponds to that which the last possess over the first in the newly sprouting branch of science and experimentation. Meaning, if you want to understand science, are you going to go to Plato or are you going to go to Descartes? You're going to go to Descartes. Why? Because Descartes knows everything that Plato knew. Plus, 
He's standing on the shoulders of giants. It's a wonderful metaphor, but it's often missed that if one takes a logical step further and says, well, therefore, I know better than those who came before me. You know what you do? You pull the giant right out from under you. You pull the giant right out from under you. I just want to be clear on this, and then I'll let you ask a question or make a comment. That, that the, the purported objective nature of science, which is I know everything that everyone came before me knew, plus, which then undermines the veracity or legitimacy of the observations which came before me, means that where did you get your knowledge from to begin with? You end up, when you undermine that fourth pillar of received tradition, even received scientific tradition, you end up hanging in the air. And the morale says you actually then can't know anything. Yeah, Chuck. Listen, that's just a, 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 um, a, a fact of knowledge, right? That, that the, in, this is in halachic discourse, this is what's called halachic betray, that the halacha should always be side, decided by the later authorities, believe it or not, even though today it seems to be opposite. Why? Because they knew everything which came before them. Except what? Anybody here afraid to eat strawberries? Anybody heard the scare rumors about strawberries in the Orthodox world? You guys can get out more. I can show you YouTube videos of, of bugs hiding under the seeds on top of strawberries. So I have a wonderful kuntris written by um, Rav Hankin's son, Shemikam Demo, right? He was uh, murdered, he and his wife. Uh, at this point, it's been a number of years. But um, he wrote a wonderful kuntris, which if I were going to give it a title, I would call it The Ben Ishchai Ate Strawberries. <laughs> Meaning, there's a problem when the dwarf on the shoulder of the giant begins to undermine the status of the giants. In, in, in halachic discourse, this is called lo motzim laz al rishonim. Right? You can't disparage those who came before you, not just out of some sort of ancestor fear, but because you actually destroy the entire system. It's all well and good that you... Now, you could, might argue, by the way, that maybe nature has changed. We use all kinds of pesticides and... and the, careful. As soon as you start saying... We know more than they used to. What you end up saying is that all your ancestors ate tree. No, but we have processing and, and Did your ancestors eat trafe or not? <laughs> you hear my question? It's, it's true what you're saying. We have microscopes and, and telescopes. And yeah, you know what? They didn't have it. They didn't have microscopes, telescopes, microwave, oven, scanning electron, whatever. Does that mean that they were all practicing halacha in the wrong fashion? Uh-uh. It's not, it's not, but that's not the way halacha works. And this is one of the great challenges of our age, is that if you see a bag of vegetables that says checked with a microscope, you are being fooled. Because the Gemara says, lo nitnu tor shari. The Torah wasn't given to the ministering angels. If you can't see it with your naked eye, it doesn't matter whether it's there. It has no halakhic significance. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to check. I'm not telling you you don't have to check. I mean, we can talk about checking bugs because bugs are the new pig. Don't forget that. But um, the, uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, you see the problem which opens up 
when you make science a standard of measure for knowledge is that you end up undermining, not just out of a frumkite issue of like, oh, no, no, can't disparage the rabbi, but how do you now know anything? Your answer is the scientists. Well, the scientists don't care about halacha. They care about empirical no, I got another great question for you. I remember a great story from one of my teachers that when he was in, in Yeshiva in Yerushalayim um, in the six, early 60s, he said that they, when they would get rice for lunch, this is how it went. Everybody would start to eat as fast as possible. <coughs> and, and you'd hear someone go, one, and everyone would start to eat a little faster. Two, somebody would go to that. Three, everyone put their spoon down. What's going on? Is that if you find three bugs in the rice, it's called muqsaq mutulat. It's now got the presumption that it's infested and you cannot eat it. Now tell me, how many bugs did they eat in those first uh, few minutes before they were all found? The answer is halakhically, none. The question is not, are there bugs in the rice? The question is, do you have an obligation to check it? That's not a scientific question. That's a halakhic question. And you understand the difference? So Azari Darasi, says, that's nonsense. Check it and tell me whether there are bugs in the rice. And you know what? The world has gone that way. It's ironic. The religious world has gone that way. Right? And there are, I'm not going to get on my discourse. It's a big, you tell, this is an issue for me. Um, the two spots coming. It's Chag HaTolaim. Right? Um, the, uh, it's what it's become. It's what it's become. We'll talk about it on two Shvat. The holiday of bugs, if you didn't get the joke. Um, Tzu Shvad becomes various things in every generation. And our generation has become the holiday of bugs. And, that, and by the way, I think in every generation can teach you a lot. It was the generation of planting trees for the Zionists. It's beautiful, right? Well, who in their right mind is going to go out in a month from now and plant a tree? <laughs> this is not according to Mother Nature when trees should be planted. But according to the Zionists, it was a perfect time. So don't look for logic. Look for culture. Um, because the sun's not shining. <laughs> the, um, okay. Anyway, sorry. Meanwhile, back to Maharal and Azari Darasi. So, so Azari Darasi says, you look at logic. Sorry, Nats, don't do that, science. And also you look at the non-Jewish sources. That's not how Titus died. And Maharal says to him, you don't understand the sages. And here this comes back, I don't know your name. Yes, to your point, Esther, right? Which is that, is that, that, that um, you don't understand the sages. He says, you're looking for a science or the so-called real meaning. Remember, this is what humanism is all about, right? For the, for the church, and ultimately really for the Protestants, real meaning exists in the plain meaning of the text, right? That's why the Protestant movement in particular began to move back toward the Hebrew text, also the, the Renaissance humanists toward the Hebrew text because they feared that the translation had led them astray. You know what we call that? Fundamentalism. And that's why when Luther encountered the theory of heliocentrism, his response to it was, it's Narshkeit. It says in the book of Joshua that the sun stood still. That is a goyish cup. <laughs> Why? Because you're going to choose a false dichotomy between the scientists and, and the text. What did the Maral say? It absolutely stood still, says Kepler. Things don't stood still, stand still. You know what Maral was said to him? For you, it probably wouldn't have. Right? And that's not just some clever answer. It's an assertion about the nature of reality. And so it says the Maral, when you look at the Agadotot, 
that, and, and you think you, you understand them and therefore dismiss them as what he calls these sort of fabrications, it's because you don't actually understand what the sages are interested in. They are interested in what he calls sibaha sibaot, the cause of causes. In the same way that there's a will which stands behind all will, there's a cause which stands behind natural causality. So says the Maral, what's that story about, uh, uh, the story of Titus actually about? I want to get his words correct here. Um, where is his quote? Sorry. Um, too many notes. So, actually, apparently I cut out his direct quote. Oh, here it is. Um, he says, it's actually the expression of what he calls a deeper science. He says, of course the sages weren't talking about a mosquito in the physical sense, or a gnat, in the physical sense. What are they telling you? Is that the effective force, meaning God's will, penetrated Titus's brain, and Titus, the destroyer of the temple, the arch-villain, who, who, who believed he was greater than God, who famously you know, thrust his sword through the parochet, the separating curtain in the Holy of Holies, is vanquished by the smallest of God's creations. He says, it's teaching you something. And says the Maral, if you're interested in just reading the shot, the plain meaning of the text, then you will go astray. Now what's fascinating is that he and Azariah Durasi agree on that. Did you see that? Durasi reads this story and says, this is nonsense. It can't be true. Why? Because science, because of the non-Jewish sources I have, history. The Maharal says, whoa, it's absolutely true, but not if you just read it. Which opens up a whole other can of worms, which is, well, how on earth then do you know what it means? Yeah? Every day. I mean, that's a, it's a, there's, a, there's a tautology of thinking in there. That if I believe in miracles, then what's the problem? Right. right. But if I don't believe in miracles, then it's a problem. Right. So, so that's the dichotomy that the Maharal rejects. Because, because science, particularly in its day, now you're also a product of a, of a, of a I would say, a, a deeper comprehension of science. Science in its day was replacing religion as a framework for the world. Remember, the hallmark of science all the way up through the mid-20th century, early 20th century, depending on which person you're talking about, is certainty. Certainty, right? Scientific positivism. We can actually know. And it's replacing the darkness of superstition. By the way, notice, what does religion, by and large, offer in response to science? Doctrine. Dogma. Certainty. Because if science is going to be able to tell you what the world's about, then we ought to be able to do that as well. The problem is, the scientists gave up on certainty about 100 years ago. Well, okay, yeah, about 100 years ago. It's 2020, right? Religion's still hung up on it. It's an amazing thing. And the Maral 
was all about certainty as process, process and not product. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a few pieces to this, and I want you to understand it. Because remember, on the surface of it, pun intended, Azaria de Rossi and the Maral are both rejecting the plain meaning of these texts. The shot. De Rossi, though, then says, therefore, okay, maybe they have some moral tale meaning, but there's no ultimate lesson in there. Now, mind you, de Rossi is an Orthodox Jew. He's not deconstructing the Bible. He's not telling you to eat traith. He's just saying, listen, maybe the sages were just a product of their time. The Maharal says the sages are a link in the chain of revelation and therefore are timeless. But who is it that can bring their timeless wisdom out? The reader. It is critical. His faith that there is relevant knowledge in every generation within the text means that it's the obligation of the reader to extract the meaning from the text and not the obligation of the text. I want you to appreciate this. This is a whole approach to Torah. The Torah is a story which creates its reader. Just think about it. It's a story which creates its reader, who then turns around and reads the text in new ways that creates a new reader. And so long as that's an organic process, what happens is that the Torah cultivates the consciousness which can draw deeper meaning out of it in every generation. Which is why the world which we can bring into being is not the same as the world that the Maharal could bring into, be bring into being. He's way ahead of his time. But, but if you, the other way to say this is that if you come with absolute faith that science is the best fit for the world and that there's real wisdom within rabbinic tradition and you refuse to give up on either one, you will be able to bring new insight into the world. And, and the Maharal's faith is that insight was either always there, and that's a bit of an academic question. Are you reading into the text or are you reading out of it? Meaning, right? Are you, are you extracting the meaning that was waiting for you, or are you bringing your meaning with you when you meet it? It's an interesting question that I want to get into right now, but you understand what the Maharal is arguing? You refuse to accept the dichotomy. Azari Darasi accepts the dichotomy. The sages were, like everybody else, product of their time, useful where useful, and not where not. But we know where that goes. Right? The Maharal says, no, the sages are eternal part of the chain of tradition, but don't take their words at face value. Well, where, how am I supposed to understand their words? Ah, that's what it means to be a Jew. And if you refuse the dichotomy and you bring your whole self to the text, you will be able to derive meaning, which I think the Maharal would argue has always been there and is waiting for you. Yeah, Chuck. Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. If people are unfamiliar, the, the, the narrative portions of the Gemara tend to be less critical than the legal portions, and that's for sure true. At the same time, on one level, this is mikshat, this is one unit. It's rabbinic thought. Like I said, right, it's one thing to say the rabbis were wrong about astronomy. It's hardly shocking. You know, it's compared to Galileo or Hubble, for that matter. It's another thing to start talking about issues of gender, issues of biology, um, and furthermore, if I, if, if I came in here and started to talk to you about how the earth was flat, and then I told you, by the way, this is the way you ought to raise your children, I think you probably would be less inclined to listen to the second half once you'd heard the first. Meaning it's true from a technical discourse. 
the Agata has a lesser status. But intellectually speaking, if I undermine the status of the Agata, I'm taking a leg out from under the status of halacha. Because why would you trust someone who thought a gnat flew up somebody's nose and grew to the size of a basketball if you know such a thing is impossible? Mm-hmm. You're saying, you know, so he is like, because he's put together explaining it, that this is the math. Right? So, so I've read his books. Yeah. Listen, so. I had a conversation with him once about it. He'll, he'll sure they won't remember. Um, but uh, there's a tradition within Amish which is called Tolav Ilan Gadol, that we hang our thoughts on a big tree. Right? So, so there's, a, there's a midpoint here, which is that, okay, I could probably find whatever I want if I look hard enough in the Kabbalists. But did they really say it? So why would you say that they said it? Because if the Ramban said it, it's very different than if I did. Or you can honestly believe that that's what the Ramban said. But it's, again, it's an academic <coughs> distinction. I am, I am militant, in fact, I would say, about the importance of, of, of everyone's obligation. Everyone's obligation to hold fast to both sides of that equation and then to draw forth from the Torah what only you can. I mean, he's an exceptional example. Um, the, I want to close this piece out. Other questions or comments before I wrap it up? And then we'll move on to Central Europe. I don't know your name. Uh, Bernie Rosenberg. One Great. of the problems is that most people believe in the science For sure. Well, I mean, it's only a serious problem inside, in, insofar as we, we allow it to shape our behavior. I mean, notice that's... It takes people's behavior. For sure. I, I, I'm a neurologist, so I'm involved in neuroscience, and a lot of new ideas were vilified, not even 200 years ago, but 10, 15, currently, by other, other physicians, neuroscientists, because they were different. Yeah. Because they had a belief system instead of trying to understand. Well, I'm sure you have a lot to say about cognition, then, because I mean, that, that whole process is, is far from obvious. How it is well, we come to know the world. Yes. <laughs> so, but this this um, takes us back to Rav Saj's point, which is that there is no knowledge without authentic tradition. There's some framework of belief, and I would point out that I, I just remind you that Rav Saj's point was that you have an obligation to use the first three, the classic sources of knowledge, sensory, learned, logical deduction, to critically analyze the fourth. Right, and that's basically all you can do. Now, I'm a student of history, as you guys probably sense by now, right? And in Western canon, even to this day, with postmodern historians, objectivity is the gold standard of history. Except in the postmodern era, objectivity is a myth and recognized as such. So you know what the standard of objectivity is for a historian today? Making explicit your biases. Explicit your biases. Meaning, meaning it's, you can never... You can never get rid of your biases. Everybody has lenses through which they see the world. Yeah, that's why in scientific articles people Yeah, exactly. Well, it depends. In the article, I don't know. But, I, but, but, it, but it's not just supposed to be full disclosure so other people can do it. In the process of learning, I should be asking myself, how am I seeing this and how could I see it otherwise if I were somewhere else? If I were someone else. It's almost impossible. 
At the same time, it's about as close as you're going to get to objective as the human brain will allow you. And then sometimes you can actually make a real breakthrough. Um, okay. So look, just to wrap this piece up about the morale and, and, and Azari Darasi, which I hope you appreciate, is in many ways um, expressive of the whole challenge, which is waiting. This is the beginning of the modern challenge. It ain't going away. And Azari Darasi actually is resurrected. He's condemned in his days. We said the Maharal fights him. The Shulchan Aruch wanted his books burned. But no one less, none less than the Graal, the Vilna Gaon, both reads and quotes it. Right? And, and meaning he, he, he's, his, his sense, and the Gaon, of course, was also famous as a mathematician, meaning he was, he was someone who knew that science was a path to real knowledge, that this, this challenge is not so simply put to rest, is my point. So, and even the Maharal does make the point that... Um, that he says we should pay attention to what the scholars of the nations have to say about what is below the sphere of the moon because they are scholars of the natural world, right? Below the sphere of the moon in rabbinic language is the earth, right? Um, study of the sciences that focus on reality and the order of the world is certainly permitted. They are like a ladder to ascend to the science of the Torah. What does it mean, a ladder to ascend to the science of the Torah? I just want you to remember this. You can take it away. That, that the Jews are really hung up on the unity of God, but we rarely think about what that means. It's important to know the Jews are not philosophers. It's not Aristotle's God, which is unity of being. Why? Because Aristotle's God has no relationship to the world. He cannot philosophically have a relationship to the world because Aristotle's God doesn't act. We're also not biologists or physicists who are interested in a unity of the fabric of creation, which is good because the physicists have kind of given up on that too. What we're interested in is in the unity of will. The primary assertion that the Torah makes that Am Yisrael seeks to embody in the world is that there's one will which lies behind creation. And the same will that says that what goes up must come down is the same will that says don't mix milk and meat and you shall not murder. Right? And that living one's life, according to that, says the Maharal, well, if the same will created the physical world, then understanding the physical world is understanding God's will. If the same will is what flows through the agaratot of the sages, well, then understanding the, the words of the sages is understanding that will. What happens when they contradict? People fall into this false dichotomy. Anytime you encounter contradiction in your learning, whether it's in Bible, whether it's in rabbinic text, whatever, take a little red flag out of your pocket and plant it with a sign that says, dig here. Because what you're encountering is limitations of language and cognitive frames to communicate the depth of meaning. Right? And so the Maharal understood this. The way he communicates it is that ultimately there's a divine will and there's a will embedded in creation. There's only one will. God's will trumps. Miracle is not a disruption of the natural order. It's a revelation of the divine order. And since the natural order in the mind of the Maharal is an expression of the divine order, it is subservient. Then why does the world usually work the way it does? Because that's how we know the world. I'll give you another example, and then I'll close it out. Right? The physical comes online before the intellectual and the moral in the human being. Right? Should you hit people when they don't do what you want? I'm willing to bet that most of us would say no. Then why is it that every single two-year-old from whom you grab something will say, mine, eh, and whack you? Because it's a natural reaction. Really, if it's natural, shouldn't we all be doing it? Why are you telling me it's wrong? 
because we have a moral and intellectual framework which emerges later in our development, but we judge to be more correct. We judge it to be expression of a deeper will, forget God, a deeper will of my selfhood, of, of human society. You notice the parallel. Says the Maharal, God gave us the Torah, and then the sages interacted with it, and they gave us the Agadita. But you want to know what those things mean? It actually takes longer for the consciousness to emerge from those texts themselves in order to explain them, which is ultimately the messianic vision. So, so on that note, it's interesting just to, you know, the Maral speaks actually at the end of Bear Gola, which is his um, defense of rabbinic thought. By the way, I just cannot encourage you enough. If you've never learned the Maral, Maral is a tremendously important text. Not actually as hard as, as many other texts out there, and he's got a corpus which is huge. Um, the, he says at the end of the seventh bear, at the very end of the book, he actually has an impassioned defense of, um, of freedom of speech, interestingly enough, um, because he's living in a world where Christianity is sort of a uh, state religion, and the Jews were often faced with a, um, a suppression of their ability to express their opinions. And he says, speak not, close your mouth. If that happens, there will, there will take place no purification of religion. Right? He says, don't, sorry, don't say to your opponent, speak not, close your mouth, because that happens, there'll be no purification of religion. Meaning, you, the critical discourse is critical for knowledge. This is the opposite of what some people think. Namely, that when you prevent someone from speaking against religion, that strengthens religion. He says it's not so because curbing the words of an opponent in religious matters is nothing but the curbing and enfeebling of religion itself. So you notice the Maral did not seek to ban Azariah Darasi. He didn't recommend that his works be burned. He actually just wanted to prove him wrong. And in order to prove him wrong, he needed people to actually read the book so that they could see how wrong he was. Now, that's... I think an important, it's an important text, in my opinion, in rabbinic history. But there's a fascinating counterpoint that comes from Rav Kook. Rav Kook is much later. Rav Kook, of course, is a product of the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And he points out that, that freedom of speech comes at a price. Right? Because, because we're all a product of systems of thought. And if you undermine the traditional allegiance to rabbinic thought in some quest for freedom, you end up losing your ability to know the world in a way which is actually reflective of the Torah. Right? In other words, as my father used to say, it's good to be open-minded, but don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. <laughs> right? So this is one of the challenges that the uh, modern era poses. We will not, uh, sorry, we will be seeing it again. So don't worry, we're not done with it. But um, Adkan, that's the presentation of the battle between uh, the Maharal and uh, Azaria de Rossi. And questions or comments, and shift gear for the last 25 minutes or so to talk about uh, the sociology of social political context of Central Europe. Questions, comments, things people want to put out there? Um, I, I mean, it, it, it's a good question. The golem, you know, is deeply associated with Maral. I would say uh, on one foot, as it were. Um, the, 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 the whole reason that people find stories, by the way, the golem doesn't originate with Maral. The idea that, that, um, that the sages had the ability to create uh, animated beings, if not live beings, in the Gemara itself, um, so much so that you might even be able to 
finish off the Tenth and Dominion with one. Um, but but it, it, it's just a question of what one believes, um, how one manipulates the fabric of creation. What, what are the tools that one has to manipulate the fabric of creation? If, it, it, you know, just think about this. A hundred years ago, if I walked into this classroom with this, and this is not even so impressive, right? Um, and I put it on the desk, and I think, hmm, that's strange. All of a sudden, it starts to vibrate. What's that? I say, oh, sorry, hang on a second. It's my brother. He's in China. <laughs> what? Wait, his brother's in the box? What's China? You know, most people, like, you, you understand? That, that, that we know the world in a way in which people even 100 years ago couldn't know it. So it is, to me, entirely possible that such a thing is true. It's also, to me, entirely possible that what you're hearing is a classic story of how someone of the Morales' rabbinic status managed to defend a downtrodden people who didn't have all of the classic tools of self-defense, right? And furthermore, notice the, the golem is almost an anti-self-defense story. You know? You understand? Why is the golem an anti-self-defense story? Because when, when the non-Jews attack, what doesn't happen is that the Jews organize themselves with pitchforks and, and, and swords and, and sort of man the gates of the ghetto. So one can understand that story in a lot of ways, I would say. Okay, other questions, comments? Maral and De Rossi before we just switch gears for the last 15, 20 minutes? Okay, anybody who thinks I'm crazy can speak to me later. Okay, so the, the, um, the coming, we've been speaking for literally hundreds of years about this drift from east to west sorry, west to east, I should say, um, within European Jewry, right? And, and we spoke about the expulsion of the, of the Jews from Spain, and that was also a west to east motion. I'm just looking for, there it is, east to west again. Um, the, what lies ahead of us is that as the 17th century opens and progresses, there's going to be a gradual return of Jews to Western Europe, and they're going to flow from two places. Right? First of all, they're going to flow from the new heartland of Jewish life, which exists in Poland, Lithuania. There's going to be sort of like almost a backflow back into the German states. And they will consist of, once again, the conversos seeking shelter from Portugal and the broader realm of um, the Spanish side of the Holy Roman Empire. Right? And we will follow their stories essentially separately. Um, now, let's talk about Central Europe. Central Europe at this point, is a mess. And, and by 1618, in fact, we're going to start the Thirty Years' War. We're going to get to that in one second, but just to let you know how much of a mess it is, there are literally hundreds of princedoms, principalities, duchies, counties. That's where it counts from, right? County? Right? And anything you can imagine. And just the political problem is bad enough. What else has happened to Central Europe? multipolar Christianity. Well, it's, it's, it's Quentin who asked whether it's a split in religion, but we'll call it multipolar Christianity. Right? It used to be that the ideal of the Christian world was reflective of Augustine's vision, which was forged in the late 4th, early 5th century, and that's the city of God. This idea that a Catholic monarch controlling both church and state, because the church and state were not perceived as different, within which only the righteous were tolerated and the wicked shall perish by the sword, right? Who was the last person in our story who attempted to recognize right, or realize the kingdom of God on earth in that respect? Ferdinand and Isabella, right? The, the Catholic monarchs who create Spain, 
through the union of Aragon and Castile, and really, in many ways, create the first proto-nation state within Europe. I want you to remember that, that the rise of the nation state in Europe is bound up with the expulsion of the Jews. And must be so. It must be so from the Christian standpoint because of this notion of the city of God. Because the Jews are the classic heretics. They don't belong in the city of God. So if you're finally going to have a political structure which reflects the purity of the religious structure, the Jews got to go. By the way, so did the Muslims. Let's not forget. They kicked them out as well. Um, Augustine was prepared to keep us as the suffering remnant. I don't go into that now. But, but Ferdinand apparently was not. Um, you would think then that the rise of multipolar Christianity would be good news for the Jews because no one's trying to, re to sort of realize that kingdom of God on earth any longer. You would be wrong because the chaos that erupts between the Protestants and the Catholics, which I'm not going to review entirely, can boil down to one nutshell. If you ever want to religiously degrade your opponent, all you got to do is call them what? Well, a Judaizer. Because you're not going to outright call them a Jew, because that doesn't make sense, right? But a Judaizer. That they're somehow moving toward Judaism. And so the Jew remains the sort of gold standard of bad within the Christian discourse. So what you have now in Central Europe is all these dukedom, principality, duchies, and all that stuff, east of which is ruled by a separate ruler who may be Catholic or may be Protestant. Now, in 1555, there's something called the Peace of Augsburg which was the first attempt to actually just have order within Central Europe. And basically the rule was, as is the prince, so is the kingdom. If you're Catholic, your kingdom is Catholic, which often meant the expulsion of the Protestants or at least their suppression into a very oppressed minority. And vice versa. If you're Protestant, your kingdom is Protestant. And basically everybody said, except, by the way, if you happen to be also a bishop and also a Catholic, and if you convert, it's like very complex. But it was a way to try to maintain order. But as we know, if you know anything about the history of um, Central Europe, every time someone came up with a grand scheme of keeping order, it was basically like welding the lid on a pot that you're boiling on the stove. It stops it from boiling over. But what happens eventually? Kablooey. Well, it explodes. <laughs> There's a reason that pots boil over. And, and, and that's exactly what's about to happen to Central Europe. But if you really want to understand what for the Jews, before we get to that explosion, what for the Jews is happening, I'm going to tell you a story, and we'll use this story in order to demonstrate the sort of uh, sociopolitical forces that are shaping Jewish life there. So it's a story about the 1614 um, Fetimich uprising. Want me to write that down? Actually, not Fetimich. Felt. Fetmilch, 1614. It's not, I mean, it's, it's not a big one, but it, it is demonstrative of um, all the currents that I want to speak about. So it's always good to tell the story and then do the analysis rather than just making it abstract. So what happens? The central Germany, meaning the German states, there is no Germany at this point, uh, the major industry was the textile industry. Right? Cloth, they're producing cloth. But by the early 17th century, and the uprising actually happens in 1614, um, the early 17th century, um, the Lutheran cloth guilds, because the guilds were religious associations as well as professional associations, which is why the Jews historically were excluded from the guilds, was a mix of religion and economics. Always remember that, that, that classic European Jew hatred as opposed to anti-Semitism, which is a, a political manifestation, classic European Jew hatred is always a nexus between religion and economics. Right? Whereas I would say that, that anti-Semitism is a nexus between 
politics and economics. Um, so, so the Lutheran, yeah, classic Jewish hate, Jew hatred in Europe was, was, was always a nexus between religion and economics, whereas more often anti-Semitism of the modern era will be a nexus between politics and economics. You can't get away from economics. Marx, after all, was more or less a Jew. Um, the, so the Lutheran cloth guilds were being pushed out at the beginning of the 17th century by the advent of Dutch and English textiles in the market. This is the beginning of the mercantile era. If people are familiar, mercantilism is this belief that the state should control the economy, agriculture, trade. It was an attempt, in fact, to create states, right? To move away from a family-run multinational empire, which is what was controlled by the Habsburgs, the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, how could Spain, good chunks of Italy, the German states, and, and what will become the Netherlands all belong to the same empire? And it's a family, right? So, so mercantilism is the beginning of the consolidation of states through drawing clear economic boundaries. And its purpose was very simple. What was the purpose of mercantilism? So, sorry. Make money. <laughs> Right, which is good news for the Jews, as we'll see shortly. Right, so so um, so the the cloth guilds are being pushed out by these Dutch and English textiles, right? And the Jews are deeply involved in the importing business. They're not dominant, but they're deeply involved. Right, why? Because it used to be in the old agricultural world, still the remnants of the feudal world, pre-mercantile economies, trade was looked down upon. That the ideal of a country was that it should be self-sufficient. Therefore, right, the landed aristocracy were the social ideal, and an economic vision was self-sufficiency. This is already a product of the old Roman estate economy, if you really want to know. But, but now, in the mercantile era, there's a recognition that actually you can accumulate wealth. Right? We're, gonna, we're going to go to the Americas, extract raw products, process them at home, and sell the processed products back to the colonies that we conquered, and what are we going to get in return? Money. So therefore, suddenly, trade becomes a necessary and respected part of the economic process, and the status of the Jew is elevated along with it. Right? And furthermore, because there is no longer a unified Christian perspective, you can pick and choose when you hate the Jews. So in certain ways, actually, despite the fact that Europe is going to suffer miserably for the first half of the 17th, 17th century, the Jews do fairly well. I mean, everybody suffers in the Thirty Years' War, as we'll talk about. But the Jews' status is quite elevated by the elevation of the status of trade. So here you have all the elements for disaster. These Lutheran cloth guilds are being pushed out by imports. The Jews are involved in the imports, highly visible because they're identifiable as Jews, deeply hated because they're Jews, and now doubly so because they're economic competitors. So you get a guy named Vincent Fettmilch, hence the uprising, who begins a, a series of vehement complaints against the Jews in the city council of Frankfurt. Now, Fettmilk is part of the guild, and he goes to the city council. Now, you have to understand something about the German states. And in fact, the, the remnants of the Middle Ages is that the cities often had an independent status from the county, duchy, principality within which they found themselves. If you learn the history of the Middle Ages, this, the, the, middle, this city of the Middle Ages is a kind of an entity unto itself. We're not going to go into it now, but I want you to know that the burghers, meaning the, the, usually the, um, the wealthy economic class of the cities, were often the greatest opponents of the Jews. Why? They were the direct economic competitors. 
Again, everybody hated the Jews because we killed their God. Fine. That's a given. Right? But you could let that go. It was a long time ago. Until they start to pinch you in the pocket, in which case it's really bad news. So notice, Fatimil doesn't go to the Holy Roman Emperor. He doesn't go to the, the prince. He goes to the city council of Frankfurt. And he begins to complain. And, and um, at the same time, he either funds or somebody else does. It's a little unclear. But there is a reprinting of Luther, Martin Luther, his classic tract, his anti-Semitic tract, on the, well, his Jew-hating tract, I should say, on the Jews and their lies, is at this point reprinted and widely distributed. So here we have that mix of the economic and the religious hatred. Right? Um, now, the Holy Roman Emperor, at this point it was uh, Matthias, actually tries to, mod- to mediate between the guilds and the city council, but it doesn't work. And there's an explosive insurrection. The populace seizes City Hall. They burn down the ghetto. What's interesting is that they expel all the Jews, but they don't kill them. It's, it, it is a big shift at this point. No, I know it may not sound like much, but, but it's a big improvement over the Middle Ages. I mean, you, you read the Crusades, this ends in mass death or forced conversion. At this point, it just says, we want you out of here. And in fact, this, right, Frankfurt, we're talking about Frankfurt. Right? And it spreads to Worms. It also spreads to Baden, um, a, meaning the Jews in many of these other towns where they are direct economic competitors with the burghers of the cities. There's a repeated distribution of the, of the hateful tracts of Luther, incitement against the Jews on both economic and religious grounds, and their expulsion. How does it end? The Holy Roman Emperor sends in the troops, restor- hangs the ringleaders of the riots, restores the Jews to their place, and in fact gives them new charters with additional powers. This is a major shift in Jewish history, and it has everything to do with the fact that the Jews are now becoming a critical element of mercantile economy. And whereas for the burger on the street, so to speak, they're a competitor, for the emperor they're a source of wealth. And this is a pattern that we're going to see as mercantilism grades into um, the emergence of the actual states. Yes? Well, the Holy Roman Empire is nominally Catholic, but it, but it goes, as I said, from, it goes from state to state, principality to principality, what the religion is. But, this, but it had nothing to do with that? Was the religious battle as well as economic? Well, I mean, I pointed out that, that the, these guilds were reprinting on the Jews and their lies, which is a Protestant work and was written by Martin Luther. No, no, this had more to do with, with, um, with politics than religion. Yeah, and, and also... The other thing that we're seeing here, it has all the elements of the emergence of the next stage of modernity. It has the economic battle, that as trade is elevated, the Jews' status is elevated, but antagonism comes with it. It also has the fact that religious hatred has not gone away, right? Luther on the Jews and his lies. But it also has the fact that in the end of the day, what we're headed for is the consolidation of absolute power. Because, because mercantilism is not just about economics, it's about politics. And what, what's, go, what's going to happen is power concentrated into a single organism called the state is going to replace the three-tiered, or let's say, the, the, the sort of love-hate triangle that's ruled Europe till today. What has controlled Europe up till today are, are the church, the nobility, 
and the crown. And then there's the populace, which plays its role. But though, that's the power politics of Europe through the Middle Ages into early modernity. The church, the nobility, and the crown. This is a power move by the crown to overrule the nobility. The church doesn't seem to have played much a role in this particular incident. The church is on its way out as, an, as a, uh, a temporal power in Europe. In fact, they've already really been kicked out. It's just they haven't recognized that fact yet. Yeah. And then he said the Holy Roman Empire. So, in other words, if there was, if he didn't have that, if he had. Well, I mean, in the end of the day, he's. He, in the end of the day, he's still nominally in charge. He's still the Holy Roman Emperor. Everybody is, is subservient to him. And in this wife, this situation is so unique. Nominally in charge means he's not really in charge. Until what? Until he rolls troops in. Meaning the fact that he was willing to do so in order to defend the Jews. It wasn't out of the goodness of his heart. Let's yeah. not make any mistakes. It was the economic interest here. So were the Jews expelled from Budapest and then brought back? Yes, they were expelled, and then he sent in troops, hung the ringleaders, and brought the Jews back and gave them a, 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 a he said more... Listen, Jewish life in, at this point, it's important to know that Jewish life in Central Europe at this point was tenuous. There was a law which had been on the books since the early Middle Ages of, oh, I, there's a great uh, Latin term for it. Um, you got to hear it in the proper, wait, hang on, where is it? Oh, come on. Um, there's so many notes here. Um, I just want to hear the, the proper term. Well, whatever, it's the right of non-tolerance. There's a good Latin term for it. I just can't find it in my notes right now. The right of non-tolerance, that, that cities had the right to exclude Jews. It's, it's been around since the Middle Ages. will extend all the way up until basically the 18th century. Um, the, uh, this is part, and even in the cities in where Jews lived, as I said, they had a charter. That charter could be a liberal charter that allowed them to freely move and, and come in. It could be a very restricted charter, which kept the population extremely limited, which controlled both immigration and outflow, and even would, would restrict marriage. As we'll see, as, as modernity progresses, right, in many of the German cities, you had to apply for a permit to get married as a Jew from the state. Right? So the, the Jewish life, on one hand, is, is encodified in law. On the other hand, it's restricted by it. We spoke about this long ago. Just remember that law, whatever the philosophers amongst us may think, is a process of solidifying power relations, defining status and solidifying power relations. And nobody knows that better than the Jews of Europe. Because as law becomes more and more the rule that replaces uh, you know, religion, so the question of how to fit the Jews into law will lead to what, on our eyes, would look most, like the most illiberal or even illegal things. But, but that's of an assumption of the role that law is supposed to make. Law defines status and clarifies power relations, in which case it makes perfect sense that law would restrict Jews to very defined segments of society. That's why ultimately we'll end up with emancipation, which is another legal move. Yeah. Uh-huh. Were sort of the, the managers, if 
so that's more true in the Polish. That's more true in the Polish lands, and depending on how far east Austro-Hungary included that land, we're going to speak about this role of uh, of the rent managers when we when we start talking about Eastern Europe again. Well, <laughs> everybody was happy but the peasants. Um, we'll, we will get to that as we, as we approach 1648. Yeah, but, but these are the German lands I'm speaking about. Um, one more word, and then, then I'll just mention the 30 years war, and we'll be done, because we only have about seven minutes. Um, that word is sovereignty. And sovereignty is actually emerging as a new concept, a new political reality in Europe, divorced from religious sanction. Okay, what is sovereignty? Sovereignty is, is some attempt to create a sense of legitimacy for political power, which doesn't depend upon divine right. Remember, up to this point in Europe, the king is the king because God said so. The peasants say, why is he king? On some level, it's the church that answers. That or the same thing which is always answered, which is raw power. Right? But, but what's emerging now out of the skepticism of the European philosophers of the early 17th century no longer looking to the church for the foundations of reality, are the notions of natural law, that this is just the way the world has to be, somebody has to be in charge. But also, along with that sense of natural law, is, this the, is the question of what is the duty of the state to society. It's a very interesting question which emerges once you divorce church and state. You understand? The duty of the church to the people was the sacraments. Right? They had to bring the truth and, and get you in the keys of heaven. The duty of the people to the church was what? Absolute obedience. Right? The duty of the state to society is more complex. Right? And so what we're going to see gradually emerging in Europe is a sense that sovereignty, a legitimate rule over some piece of territory, will depend, first of all, on natural law, that there must be some system of governance, and how do we define the duty of the state to society? What is it that the ruler owes to the citizen? We're not, these are anachronisms. We're not talking about citizens yet, right? And in, in that case, we're no longer to have this sort of crude power wielding that Machiavelli, who was one of the first political thinkers to break with the church, who just basically said a good ruler is the one who does whatever is in their interest. But we're actually going to begin creating a sense of legitimacy within society which no longer depends upon religion. And that's going to seem like good news for the Jews, right? Because the Jews were, were suppressed or excluded from most of European society, at least in the formal sense up to now, because they didn't belong to the religious covenant. So at first glance, it will seem that emancipation is right on the horizon. We will see, if not this year, then next, um, that it actually doesn't work out all that well. But, um, I mean, it's not all bad. So, so last word, which is that um, in, in, a, in around 1618, more or less, um, the Thirty Years' War breaks out in Europe. What? What is the Thirty Years' War? It's a mess. No, really. That's, that's really kind of all you need to know. It is simply a mess. Thirty years, you know, why does the Thirty Years' War happen? The France, France didn't want to be surrounded by the Habsburgs because um, the, the German states were not satisfied with the live, let live, Protestant, Catholic division, because you know the Netherlands wanted to be separate from Spain. Because I mean, I could go on to like, who cares really? For the story of our story, it doesn't matter. What you need to know is that you basically put Central Europe into a blender and push for 30 years. And because when we say war, this is not armies lining up on the battlefield. It's we'll fight until the mud gets too dense on the roads 
then let's sack some town, move in for the winter while it freezes, and then when it begins to thaw, let's start fighting again. All of them. But it's primarily the battleground is, is the German states. Basically, the with the exception of Italy, which isn't a country anyway at this point, right? The German states? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. No, there's, there's 300 plus. No, so, but I, no, meaning the German states, if you picture where Germany is, if you picture where Germany, Austria, uh, chunks of Hungary, you know, you know et cetera, they, Czechoslovakia, thank you, right? They, they, Central, Central Europe, right? Um, a, and, and just to give you a sense of the scale of destruction, is that um, they say that they estimated 8 million fatalities in, 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 in the, the sort of 20% of the total population of Germany dies. And in the sort of central corridor around the Black Forest where most of the fighting happened, 50% of the population. Bad news for Europe, but interestingly enough, it will lead to a rise of a very important role for the Jews in, within many of the armies that formed at the time. And it's actually a role at this point since it's 1244 that we're going to have to discuss at another time. Esther, last question. Yes, they, yes, these, these are, these are um, raised armies. We're, we're post-feudal era. We're no longer dealing with the, um, with the sort of uh, m agricultural military complex, but rather have standing armies and then conscription. I am leaving you hanging with the role of the Jews. Stay tuned. If you can't be here next week, it's always recorded. Thanks, everyone. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.